0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say that we have Thomas Weber on the show and we'll be talking about his new book, Hitler's First War, Adolf Hitler, the Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say that we have Thomas Weber on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Hitler's First War Adolf Hitler, the Men of the List Regiment, and the First World War. This is a long interview. Tom and I had a lot to talk about, and he certainly has a lot of interesting things to say, so I will skip the long-winded introduction to which you may have become accustomed and simply present the interview. Here it is. Hi, Tom.
1: Hi, Marshall. How are you?
0: I'm very well, and how are you? I'm very well, too. Thank you. Good. Uh, We have Thomas Weber on the show today, and we'll be talking about his new book, Hitler's First War, Adolf Hitler, The Men of the List Regiment, and the First World War. This is a really terrific book. I very much encourage you to go out and buy it. One of the things that I said in the write up to this particular interview uh, was that it's pretty hard to say anything new about Hitler because he has been uh, widely researched, let's put it that way. But Tom does a terrific job of actually uncovering some new stuff, and he has a very interesting technique for doing that. And uh, I hope we get a chance to discuss that during the interview. But Tom, why don't we? Begin by having you give us uh, a few words about yourself.
1: Well, I grew up in Germany and um, also spent the first uh, three years of my university life as an undergraduate at uh, Münster University. But um, then initially just planned to to spend a year at Oxford, but uh, then somehow liked it and just stayed on and did my graduate work. There under Neil Ferguson, and uh, and 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 after that, spent two years at the University of Glasgow, and my first job. And uh, following that, spent uh, four and a half years in America, and as a kind of life of an academic nomad, but at um, at, at at really great institutions. I spent a year at the University of Chicago, uh, two years at the University of Pennsylvania, a year at the Institute of Advanced Study. And uh, half a year at Harvard, and uh, those were really very inspiring years. And it was also during those years that, so like, most of the work of the book has done is very much really down to 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 those institutions that I could write the book. And um, then for the last two and a half years, I have been at the university, university of Aberdeen, where I teach um, where I teach uh, modern European and international history, and I'm also the uh, director of the new uh, center for Global Security and Governance mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. your biography sounds a little bit like mine I, um, I think I think I was at all of those institutions, well, not all of them, but close to all of them during <laughs> during <laughs> during the early part of my career. Um, tell us how you came to write hitler's first war. i really am very interested in this because and you tell the story in the book, but as I said in the or just a moment ago, it, it really is hard to say anything very new about Hitler. A lot has been written about him.
1: Indeed, and had you asked me a question, let's say ten years ago, Tom, are you ever going to write a book about Hitler? I said, well, no way. <laughs> just I would say it was just so many book around about Hitler, and and everything has been said. But then a few years ago, I, as I was trying to 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 think about a new subject, about a new for for a new book, as I had was just finishing my previous book, um, I was chatting to a number of people, including um, Adrian, Greg- Adrian Gregory at um, Oxford, and he said, Tom, why did, have you ever thought about writing about Hitler's regiment? Because it seems to me that um, everything we think we know about Hitler in the First World War is really based on Mein Kampf and the claims of um, of Hitler, sorry, the claims Nazi propagandists and uh, Hitler's bodies made after the war. But an obvious way around this problem would be to look at his Hitler's regiment as, as a whole. And uh, and and he said that it's, it seems to him that those stuff should be available. Mm-hmm. And I said, immediately said, that sounds like a great topic, in part because the, I, I, I very briefly had had a similar conversation with one of my academic teachers at Oxford a few years before, Herbert Pogger von Strandmann, And so, just in this initial conversation with Adrian Gregory, we just sort of flashed out the idea of the book and how it could be done, and how basically the idea would be to 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 accept that maybe um, since Hitler was just an ordinary soldier during the First World War, we would be unlikely to find, or I would be unlikely to find new material specifically on Hitler, but the way would be to uh, to 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 find out more about Hitler would be to look at his regiment as a whole, where he would be almost like the missing link in um or the missing piece in sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. But by looking at the bigger picture we could uh verify and falsify what Hitler had said um about um about his time in the First World War and what historians have have, have believed to the present day. Uh, or prior to the publication of my book. And that really was the starting point. But uh, I mean, the exciting thing then was um, that as as I then started writing the book, that after a while I realized that, well, I mean, I accepted that generally that was still the right um, approach. But actually um, I also, to my own surprise, found a quite a lot of new material specifically on Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. mm-hmm.
0: Well, we'll talk about that new material in just a moment. I want to... Um... Touch on a couple of things. Uh, One is that um, I think as you were writing the book, another book on Hitler's wartime experience came out in two thousand five. Is that correct? I've always wondered what it uh, felt like to have
1: that. I I want to say happen, but um, is that true? Yeah, it was pretty devastating (laughs) because basically, the I'd initially. I mean this conversation that we just uh, talked about that happened sometime in two thousand four and um i mean and, and then I basically spent um the summer of two thousand four and the autumn of two thousand four to figure out whether this is bible and did some initial reading and I was in Chicago at the time, and I talked to seemingly every historian who 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 <laughs> worked on the first World Hitler and said well do you, do you know of anyone who's working on this? And everyone said, well, no, um, it's a terrific topic, go for it. And so I was all excited. I already, had already booked my my first flight to Munich uh, to, to go there just before Christmas in 2004. And then I suddenly received an email from a friend of mine who t- told her the University of Glasgow at the time. And uh, William Mulligan sent, uh, sent me this email with a subject line, I think, bad news. <laughs> and uh, okay, I opened well. <laughs> you won't like this, but I just found. Um, I, I just read the. Um, I just went through the catalogue of Frank Cass, the publishing house, mm-hmm. and, I, and and there is there 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 will be a book published next year about um, Hitler's regiment in the First World War. And I, I felt devastated as well at the end of the story, and but then I thought, well, maybe it's a bit odd that no one has really ever heard of this guy. And um, I'd already booked the flight. I mean, I was going to go to Germany for Christmas anyway uh-huh. and already the flight to Munich. So I was like, well, I might as well go to, to Munich anyway and see what, what material there is. And um, so I, I went to Munich, and the uh, first day in the Bavarian War Archive, where the files of Hitler's regiment are kept, um, I immediately asked the the archivist there is, uh, about this guy. And he just looked at me and just like, I've never heard of this guy. <laughs> And uh, But he said he would check. So he checked his records and it turned out this guy had never been in the mm-hmm. war. And said, so, well, if there's a new book out or if there will be a new book out that's on Hitler's regiment of the First World War and uh, but the guy has never been to the archive um, which contains all the papers of the regiment, maybe the book won't be that significant. Mm-hmm. And uh, so maybe there is still a uh, room to write the new book. And so it just went ahead and when then the book came out a few months later, it really turned out that that, was, that wasn't really a challenge at all because it turned out that, um, it, 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 that it really was a book written by someone who had not uh, visited a single German language archive mm-hmm. and um, in that sense uh, had uh, – I mean he had just written up. Uh, what various what the official regimental history had said, and what various um, of Hitler's buddies had had claimed after the war, and in that sense, even though of course he tried honestly to to be critical, um, he still in inadvertently fell into almost every trap set by Hitler and uh, Nazi propaganda. I mean, just just to give you one example is is uh, I mean the there's been this claim that uh this regiment was Hitler's university and that um there were all these other men who rose uh, together with him to the uh to 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 the to the apex of the third Reich including Rudolf Haas, Hitler's deputy and um it's actually not true at all Rudolf Haas wasn't even in the regiment but that was something that that author hadn't, of that book hadn't really uh, realized um, at all and um so in that sense I I, I I felt sorry for the guy obviously, but I was relieved mm-hmm. that there was uh, that there was still no serious book um dealing with this question about Hitler and the First World War. And um that's that in a way the I mean the arguments um of this book that we've just talked about, namely that um, Hitler was really totally made by the First World War. That the first, that his unit was his university. That it was really in the First World War in this unit that he turned into uh, into the dictator into which he uh, that he became. That it was really there that he turned into um, a violent anti-Semite and and so on. Uh, that basically all these arguments were unlikely to be true
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: well, at least you have somebody to talk
0: to <laughs> I, tell you, I always I sort of envy people that have um, i you know my work is very obscure, and so it 's often the case that i don 't have anyone to talk to but so uh, you mentioned these traps, and this is really the 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 foil against your book against which your book is said, and that is uh, we do have some information about hitler 's wartime experience, but as you 've pointed out, it comes from. Hitler's own reminiscences in uh, Mein Kampf and other places, in, in the Tischprache and these other places, uh, and also uh, in the memoir literature that was produced by uh, some of his colleagues and also by Nazi propaganda. Maybe you could talk about the image of Hitler's wartime service that emerges from
1: that post-war literature. Sure. that The, the image that emerged from the post-war literature basically really was – uh, very much also what that book that we talked about a minute ago was arguing, namely that it was the experiences of the First World War that really made Hitler, that um, Hitler uh, returned from the war with the decision to turn uh, to, to to become a politician, that um, Hitler was in a way. The unknown German soldier, so I mean the argument sometimes among Nazi propagandists was that germany didn 't need a tomb for the unknown soldier because Hitler was a personification <laughs> of the unknown soldier, and that Hitler was really just um, a typical product of german society, uh, german German soldiers and the experiences that that had gone through and that it was a special experience that uh, experience that he had made in the first world war that gave him a right to speak and to come up with a recipe uh, for or with a promise for a better germany and how this better germany could be um, could, could 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 be implemented or could be built and um so it was really that that was really very much at the core of the story that nazi propagandists were trying to 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 propagate in, in other words that hitler was that Hitler and National national Socialism had been born in the trenches Mm -hmm. of the First World War. Um, And in addition to that, of course, there's the wider... Uh, memoirs, literature, and also the official regimental history, which is not, of course, specifically about Adolf Hitler, and as we'll maybe talk about in a few minutes, the regimental history is actually not really that complimentary um, about uh, Hitler, but or uh, that supportive um, about Hitler. But the issue here is is that obviously there are is still um, there are certain themes in these memoirs and the official regimental history that are similar to the ones or that helped to establish the Nazi myth about the First World War. Because also, I mean, there was the, in the, these memoirs, there was, of course, um, also very much an emphasis on celebrating the heroism of the soldiers, um, trying to find meaning in the war to, um and and in a way to 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 uh minimize the kind of more negative uh, experiences that so- soldiers had had in the first world war, so in that sense um those kinds of memoirs and regimental histories uh were uh, did did not uh really uh, constitute a serious challenge to the story that Nazi propagandists mm-hmm. were trying to tell actually as a matter of fact um as i'm tr- as, as I'm showing in the book. The story that Hitler was trying to tell uh, between, say, 1918 and 1945, and all Nazi propaganda um, tried to tell between 1918 and 1945, actually changed considerably over time. Mm-hmm. So Hitler, so like, uh, and, and 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 his um, propaganda machine fine-tuned his um, his story all the time, and often changed it to uh, to to meet the like sort of political needs of the day. Um, but that was interestingly some something that scholars really hadn't really picked up um, on, but they'd rather f- uh, focused on this kind of rather more monolithic um, image that uh, supposedly Hitler and National Socialism had really produced by the experiences in the First World War. Mm-hmm.
0: W- one of the things I really like about your book is that um, Hitler and the Nazi propagandists present uh, Hitler himself as a kind of typical German uh, soldier, a private in this case. But you point out uh, in great detail that he was not actually that typical, and that at many points what he says about his typicality later is false. Um, so I think we, it would be useful to actually tick off some of those uh, particularities of Hitler. First of all, he was, uh, and we knew this, but he was, um, he was Austrian. That that's A. And then uh, right, we should talk a little bit about. Um, the character of the um, regiment in which he served, which he claimed was volunteer. So why don't we talk? Why don't we get Hitler from uh, being a kind of a shiftless Austrian
1: artist into the list uh, regiment? Sure. Um, Hitler was maybe well. The story again was that Hitler was, was 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 at least typical in that he was a volunteer for his regiment in that this was a volunteer unit and that therefore he was immediately representative of all the millions of Germans who volunteered to fight in the war and that therefore his regiment was also representative of all these Germans yearning for war. The reality there was also already quite different is the in that that in fact only about thirty percent um of the soldiers in um in the regiment, even at the beginning of the war were volunteers. Hitler was immediately atypical of his regiment, in of course, in that he was Austrian. Um, I mean it's not the I mean sometimes we read that this was made him totally different. I'm not entirely sure whether that is actually entirely true because first of all there was actually about two percent of the soldiers had either been born or were living outside of Germany. And in addition to that it's of course also important to remember on both what Hitler would have seen himself as and also what other Bavarians would have see, uh, seen him as. The issue there would, of course, be is I mean, he had been born on the Bavarian. Austrian border and of course he would have seen himself as German and of course also of Germans would have seen Austrians um as uh, German. So in that sense maybe the issue is less that as an as an Austrian as a non that he was non-German but rather that he was not a Bavarian uh, like uh, everyone else. So in that sense Hitler was immediately um atypical. Hitler was also atypical in uh, many other ways. I mean for instance in the fact that soldiers generally stayed in touch as much as possible with friends and family at home, while Hitler basically had already burned all bridges to uh, pre- to, to his family, and also wasn't in touch with pre-war friends, other than, um, than, than his landlords, and one or two other acquaintances uh, from the pre-war years, and that was also really only true for the first year of the war or so. And after that, Hitler's life was really centered around just the the soldiers he had met during the war. So his men, he, his world was really the regiment in that sense. While um, the majority of other soldiers would have really tried to keep up as much uh, contact as possible. Uh, with people at home this is also becomes evident in that when hitler at the middle of the war actually has after his injury to spend some time in munich he tries to get back to the front as quickly as possible while a lot of other soldiers uh on on home leave actually overstate um mm-hmm. their 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 stay uh home so in that sense hitler was also um Atypical. Hitler was also atypical in his um, attitudes towards religion, because uh, I mean, obviously, not everyone was deeply religious in in, in, uh, in the regiment. But generally, there was a huge religious revival in the regiment at the beginning of the war. Um, soldiers flocked to services and really started to see the war very much through the eyes of religion. While again, Hitler was extremely critical. Um, of, um, of religion. So these, these, these are a number of the cases, well, actually, and of course, another, um, example would also be is that, for instance, when soldiers were not on duty during the war, they would, uh, I mean, their favorite pastimes would probably, um, for a lot of them would, would, would basically to, 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 to booze and whore their way, mm-hmm. um, around, and uh, Hitler, as a teetotaler, didn't believe in drinking. And also, he, unlike a lot of his, uh comrades, he did not frequent uh, um, pro- uh, um, um, prostitutes. But uh, on, for instance, to visit uh, visits to Lille, in just a few miles behind the front, he would um, he would walk the city, um, the, the streets of the city, and sketch the buildings of the city while his comrades would uh, spend time either in, in bars or in Brussels. Uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about, um, to take us back to 1914, there's a famous photo, everyone has seen this photo, I don't know about everyone, but at least everyone interested in World War II has seen this photo, and that is, uh, I didn't know it was by Hoffman, but it's uh, of a crowd at the Odeonplatz in Munich in August when uh, war is declared, and Hitler is in it, but you have some interesting things to say about it.
1: Absolutely, yeah. The picture of Hitler in this crowd is was um, was 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 already really propagated widely during the years of the Third Reich, but um, has been published time and time again in history books ever since, and was used as an example to show that German and um, German society was just war uh, enthusiastic and militaristic and 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 waiting for for war to break out almost and that uh, beyond that, that Hitler was just a typical product of German society because he was just an ordinary man standing in the middle of this crowd yeah. cheering. Yeah. And uh, the the problem with this image is, is that, um, w- for instance, we only see the part of the square on which the camera is zoomed in, but we don't see the rest of the square. So don't, we don't really know by just looking at the image what's happening there. But actually a film clip of the same um, scene has survived where we actually see at the beginning of the clip the rest of the square. We can actually see that far fewer people actually are there. So from that we realize that this really totally overcrowded um, image that we get from Uh, from this image really only applies to one corner of the square. Mm -hmm. We also see that there is enough uh, space within even that crowd for a tram to move through that crowd in normal speed. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, in addition to that, uh, people actually look quite worried at the beginning of that clip. And only once they realize that they were being filmed, did they suddenly then (laughs) start to throw up their hats and to to Mm -hmm. cheer. So that uh, was very much then, then put on. Um, and uh, also actually on that film clip, Hitler actually stands um at a f- um at, at a at, at a less prominent space in the um in the crowd. So they good well so, so first of all, there there are some reasons to believe, which are circumstantial, that the photo might have been a doctor to some extent. Uh that hitler might have actually been moved in in the picture and it's also interesting that um the image was really only started to to to, to be published quite widely um i think in i think only in the early 1930s mm-hmm. and um so in that sense it was very much uh, a propaganda mm-hmm. image that again possibly was even doctored but certainly was being staged in a way that um, it only told half the story, and uh, didn't tell, for instance, that again, that 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 by no means the entire square was full, and that people were not really um, uh, ecstatic all the time, but only once they were being photographed, and and so on.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that, that's very interesting. I thought that part of the book was terrific because, as I say, I've seen that image many times. It is uh, one of the most reproduced images from the Second World War. But anyway, I wanted you to say a few words about the List Regiment itself. Um, what kind of regiment was it? When it was when was it formed? Um, where did it stand in
1: the hierarchy of units? What was its uh, task in the German army? Sure. It was one of the new regiments that, that was set up at the beginning of the First World War. And it was a reserve infantry regiment. And um, it was basically one of those regiments that were quickly um scrambled together at the beginning of the war in order to have um, more units uh, available to, to 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 fight the first world war and it was really formed out indeed in small part out of volunteers who had um but to a large extent out of reservists particularly old reservists and to also a category of people who are called um, Ersatzreservisten or Ersatzreservists and the idea here is is that, of course, in Germany, um, men, gen, um, adult men, were subject to uh, mandatory military, military training, uh, but or military service. But uh, the peacetime army didn't really lack the financial resources and uh, to 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 to. to um, Call up more than I think about 50% of the adult male population. So, what happened with a lot of the other ones were they were either not called up at all or they might have been called up and quickly been assessed. And basically, the kind of men who were deemed kind of um, as unfit to serve in the uh, peacetime German army, but still seen as just about still fit enough to be quickly trained. In a situation of conflict were these Azats reservists mm-hmm. and it was really to 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 a large extent those Azats reservists who made up the bulk of the men of the regiment at the beginning of the war and uh, so in that sense, um, the regiment consisted rather than of these cheery gung ho um, hyper nationalist volunteers. Um, of primarily of, of of men who had been deemed barely fit enough to serve in the German peacetime army, and in that sense, the the unit was always um, at the lower end of the packing order. Not quite at the bottom of the German packing order, but it was at the lower end of the packing order.
0: Mm-hmm. So they uh, form up. How are they trained? You make the point that they weren't um, very well trained, actually, uh, in a peculiar way. No.
1: They were very hastily trained because while well, the the regiment was set up in August and they were sent into battle in late October, so they basically had um, basically, I guess, suppose two and a half months um, to be trained. But of course, the initial period uh, also the initial period was just um, spent in Munich, where they were just training um on schoolyards because there wasn't even enough uh, space in military barracks and so they'd been put into into high schools and they were doing training in schoolyards and and there wasn't enough equipment and so they were actually often had to train without guns they there were wa- weren't enough helmets so they actually received it's like these woolen hats that uh where some cloth had been put on top of mm-hmm. them so they were supposed to look like um, German uh, uh, r- regular German headgear, and uh, which, which proved to be quite fatal because in the first battle, they looked to some other German troops in sort of like chaos and fog, and, and uh, chaos of war, and it was a foggy day, like um, English headwear, and so there was a lot of um, friendly fire being, being shot on them. But sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself in the story. So what happened was that they were very hastily trained in Munich and then uh, sent for a few days to a training ground outside of Munich um, where they're supposed to 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 drill further and to exercise um, but after these four uh, few weeks, they were by no means fully trained and um, they um, the right kind of guns that they were going to use at the front only arrived once they were at the front so they had not never really shot with them prior to get to the front and uh, also what actually par- uh, turned out to be quite um, quite problematic was that um they were um handed out ropes uh, just before being sent to the front and th- I mean the idea was basically that the german army saw a strong possibility that there would be partisan that the, that the that the soldiers would have got to experience partisan warfare in Belgium or France, and therefore they were given um, ropes with which to hang partisans if necessary, and that created really an expectation that they would um, that they would um, experience or encounter the partisans. And uh, since and 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 what was so problematic here was so we, we, once they get to the front or once they get close to the front, we basically have got these, uh, this this bunch of half trained men <laughs> who are very nervous, who think that um, they who, who expect that uh, pa- that they're about to experience partisans, who then basically start to see a possible partisan. Um, uh, in in almost any any person whom they encounter, also think that when they're actually fired upon by their own troops, in so no, other by friendly fire, they immediately assume that this must be fire from partisans. Mm-hmm. Therefore, then um, are eager to find those partisans and to to to, to hang them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they get sent to the um, uh, front very quickly, and they are actually sent into battle very quickly by October 1914. Is that right? They are already involved in an assault, and they get slaughtered. I mean, I don't know if there's a, a more um,
1: no uh, more delicate think... way to put it. No, I think that's, that, that, that's precisely uh, the right term. And in a way, also, I think it's quite important to not try to find uh, euphemisms or delicate terms. Because in a way, actually, if you want to understand what happened to these men, to these men in the First World War, and also crucially how maybe the war experience, as we'll see in a minute, of a lot of the men of the regiment was quite different from uh, Hitler for reasons we're going to discuss, we um, we really have got to understand um, what really happened during the war, and therefore shouldn't use uh, euphemisms, but 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 really look at the reality. Um, of uh, warfare and it was indeed a slaughter that happened in that first battle The some of these soldiers indeed actually ent- went into the battle with a kind of then excitement and, uh, but that excitement did not last uh, very long it actually only lasted for a few minutes or a few hours and by the end of the day um, soldiers were already refusing to go forward a lot of them had already deserted or soldiers had even on the way to the to 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 the battlefield had already just quickly stepped aside and let themselves uh, fall into ditches on the on 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 the wayside uh, because the problem really was these soldiers really had not been trained and uh, sufficiently they didn't really know how to 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 fight um professional soldiers and professional soldiers they did face they faced professional soldiers uh, from the British Expeditionary Force, and as a result of the fact that they were actually facing these professional soldiers, and the fact that, as uh, because of fog and because of the hat, their headwear that looked like a uh, British headwear, there were also high casualties inflicted through friend, friendly fire. So as a result of that, um, a very high percentage. Of the soldiers, I can't remember at the moment of my head the exact figures became casualties in the first uh, battle of the war. It was something something like a quarter, wasn't it?
0: I mean, literally in the first day. Uh, Yes, it was.
1: It was was about um, a quarter. That 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 is correct. Absolutely, It, it was about it was about a quarter became casualties just in the first day, and the figures would have been even higher had it not been for the fact that the British were experiencing a shortage a shortage of, for instance, munition and machine guns and so on uh, of their own during that time, because, uh, during, that, uh, during that battle. Because, I mean, those British forces, again, professional soldiers who had been fighting in colonial wars before, they had um, t- far too few machine guns, and they had uh, also, just before the battle, received ammunition that didn't fit the right, the kind of rifles that they had. Mm-hmm. So the fact that only, if you will, a quarter of the men of Hitler's regiment became casualty of the battle was down to the fact that the British just didn't have mm-hmm. more machine guns and more weapons available. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, your book does a good job of uh, pointing out that much of what we uh, think Hitler learned during the war he did not learn, but you also point out that he did learn some things that he took Uh, to the Second World War, and I want to mention those as we go through his experience in the war. Um, One of them has to do with military discipline, and I was surprised to learn this. Uh, You mentioned that even in the first days of the war, soldiers were refusing orders. Uh, This is not the image that most of us have of, uh, well, if we were British, we'd say Prussian military discipline. Um, uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and uh, what Hitler
1: thought about it. Sure, of course. Really, from the very beginning of the war, there was really problem with, as you just said, with soldiers not following orders, with in discipline. Um, the particularly in discipline, as soon as things got 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 problematic, I mean, there was no problem with discipline as long as um, soldiers were not either in battle or were, the weather was all right and, and things like that. But um, as soon as soldiers were in battle um, or in combat, and as soon as the weather conditions got really atrocious and so on, immediately um, leave without absence. uh, Case of leave without absence in in subordination and so on uh, spiked. Um, The from some of the evidence that I found. I realised that, for instance, the officers and the NCOs of the regiment thought of the men, a lot of the men of the red regiment, as uh, shirkers and good for nothings, and so on. So the officers of the regiment held the men of the regiment at their discipline in pretty low um, esteem. And I think there's a good case to be made that um, Hitler saw. The response to this to, to, to this behavior as highly problematic because the response of the Bavarian to general authorities basically was to say, yes, this is a problem, but we're not going to solve the problem with being overly harsh but what we really should do is we should provide um, really more carrots and sticks. Mm-hmm. We should really try to create incentives um, rather than um, a regime of punishments to entice soldiers to fight. Also, as long as soldiers would just uh, temporarily leave but then return, they would that would generally be for- forgiven. Often, not really been taken to court at all. Or if it was taken to court, it was just uh, soldiers received very lenient, um, lenient. Um, Punishments. Even uh, there were cases where soldiers disappeared several times and still received only relatively lenient uh, punishments. And it's also interesting there to compare, of course, the system of general to justice with that of the other powers during the First World War. And there, the maybe surprising um, thing to say is is that uh, general to justice was. Um, far less harsh Mm -hmm. than certainly the system of military uh, justice of the French and the British and particularly of the Italians. I mean, the Italians um, executed an enormous number of uh, soldiers for, um, for, 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 for for, um, desertion and so on. Even, uh, but even the British and the French Mm -hmm. executed far more than the Germans uh, did. So the, in a way, what German officers... I mean, I want to give too much of a cliche presentation or talk here, but uh, is, it was basically to say that it was, again, more through incentives and trying to be benevolent and be almost like father figures. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be more likely for to to, to entice students to... Uh, sorry, to uh, so soldiers to, to continue to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hitler, of course, by the time the Second World War had come, saw this response as extremely problematic. He saw, he thought, at least in hindsight, that um, this kind of behavior um, explained the breakdown of morale and the breakdown of um, willingness to fight towards the end of the, war, in the second half of the First World War, and also the the fact that uh, supposedly a, um, a strikes could happen, and that supposedly. Um, a step in the back of the German forces could happen very much as a result of these kinds of policies and thought that it would have been much better for Germany if the policies would have been far more draconian. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the examples where then uh, the experiences of the First World War informed Hitler's conduct in the Second World War, when, of course, uh, German military justice was extremely harsh, and uh, again, I can't remember the exact figures off my head, but I think if I remember correctly, about 30,000 mm-hmm. German soldiers, I think, were executed mm-hmm. during the Second World War as a result mm-hmm. of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Hitler becomes a dispatch runner. Uh,
1: what exactly is that and how did he – how was he given that position? Mm-hmm. Hitler was – I mean, dispatch runner It's basically a messenger he, It's where people have got to take um, uh, messages from – either from command post to command post or from or often uh f- um, from trench to trench and and so on uh or from the headquarters of a regiment to the headquarters of a division and so on so basically uh, just just a messenger um hitler already became a dispatch runner um after the first few days of um of, of the war experience of his regiment of the, the first world war so um after the, uh, a few days after his first battle he was made a dispatch runner and um for the re- and, and continued to be so for the rest of the war, which means that he was really only a combat soldier uh for the first i think six days of the war or so and ever since was a dispatch runner of course now the question is what does that mean and um both Nazi propaganda and historians ever since have gone to great lengths to show that this was supposedly an even more dangerous job than the job of ordinary soldiers in the trenches but in reality um, in reality that 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 wasn 't the case at all because Hitler was not a dispatch runner for a company or even a battalion, in which case indeed his job would have been more dangerous than than the job of an ordinary um, soldier in the trenches, because indeed he would have had to, to run from trench to trench and uh, through machine gun fire, but Hitler was a dispatch runner for regimental headquarters and therefore was part of the support staff of regimental headquarters. This meant that Hitler had to generally take messages from uh the headquarters of his uh, of his regiment to either the headquarters of the battalions. Of other regiments, of, um, of of a division, and so on. I'm not saying that this was, objectively speaking, not a dangerous job or a job I would have liked to do. In in fact, of course, there was there was a um, danger of artillery fire behind the front and so on. But the point here is is that Hitler did not have to run uh, constantly through machine gun fire, and maybe more importantly. Um, or what is even more important than what I personally think of how dangerous this job was, was what the soldiers in the trenches thought of people like Hitler, and they thought that because he could sleep at night in a bed, in um, and and had of other amenities during his service, and because he generally had to operate a few a few miles behind the front, that his job was uh was was not as dangerous and um that therefore um it w- it was really um that they were really that people like Hitler were really what they called Etappenschweine, or which one might might translate as, as literally as rear area pigs. And um but, but if we just look for one second at how objectively um dangerous his post was I think the very least we can indeed say is is that it that his job was even though it was still dangerous, it was far less dangerous than this uh, than the life of um, dispatch runners in the first line of fire, and we can see this, uh, for instance, by looking at one of these famous photographs that were taken of Hitler among his fellow dispatch runners in 1915. And uh, there are eight people in the photograph. So here's uh, Hitler and seven other uh, dispatch runners from a regimental quarters. And by the end of the war, um, seven out of these eight are still alive. Mm. And the only um, dispatch runner of these eight. Dispatch Runners who died during the war did actually not die in his position as Dispatch Runner um, for the list regiment, but he was actually transferred to a unit in Romania and we don't even know whether he was still a Dispatch Runner or whether he was a different position. Mm-hmm. So in other words, none of the eight uh, Dispatch Runners for regimental headquarters, that is, in who are depicted in this photograph from 1915 died during the First World War in uh, in the post as dispatch runners for the list regiment, for Hitler's regiment, which I think is pretty good mm-hmm. evidence for the fact that, uh, that Hitler's position was comparatively less dangerous than that of soldiers in the front line.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, there are a couple of things that um, I think many people will know about Hitler's war record that uh, need to be explained, I think, and you do a good job of it. Uh, the first is, and this is less well-known, is that he was never promoted and uh, in light of the second, that is that he was decorated
1: twice. W- why was he never promoted? Mm-hmm. Well, I, mean, I should say he was, of course, promoted uh, at the very beginning of the war. Yeah. When he became a dispatch dispat runner, he was also promoted to, uh, to the rank of Gefreiter, which sometimes is translated in Hitler biographies trans, um, published in English as – Corporal or Lance Corporal, which is always even uh, wrong translation. It really should just be translated as private or private first class because it really was still uh, within um, the ranks of a private where he still didn't have any uh, command over any other soldier. He certainly was not even an NCO. Um, the reason why he was never promoted has been hotly debated, but um, I think that the evidence that uh, other people and uh, have found, in addition to the new stuff that I found, is uh, draw a pretty conclusive picture um, of a man who neither wanted to be promoted nor was seen as really promotable. The... There is some suggestion that maybe there might have been at some point attempts to make him an NCO, but generally the uh, his officers did not see, surprising though this might sound, did not see any leadership qualities in Adolf Hitler during the First World War. Mm-hmm. So this is to say also why this is so, so important is, is that this really shows that it was not just that maybe Hitler's political Attitudes or mentality had not fully developed, but also that his Hitler's personality traits were totally different. So the the guy who later became a dictator, a leader, a Führer, an inspiration, a charismatic leader, was basically seen as lacking any kind of leadership qualities, and who was therefore seen as unpromotable um, in in his unit. The other, the flip side of the argument is, is whether Hitler wanted to be promoted. And I think the reason why Hitler was extremely hesitant to be promoted is because um Hitler would have been worried to um Hitler would have been worried that he might have have to leave his immediate um surroundings. sometimes it has been said that Hitler didn't want to be that that would have meant that he had to go to the trenches or even to a different regiment and so on i think that 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 is probably not true because there are other cases where um, people were promoted and still in the same regiment. But I think Hitler was worried that a promotion would have meant that he would have had to leave his um, his familiar surroundings. And uh, I mean, as I said earlier, Hitler did not stay in touch with any of his family or pre-war friends or acquaintances. So the support staff of regimental headquarters was very much his family, so even if he had been in a very different position within the regiment, or even within regimental headquarters, he, in a way, would have, I think, been worried to 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 have been uh, pulled out of his family. And I think that is also another contributing factor, mm-hmm. um, in addition to his lack of leadership uh, qualities, why he was never promoted beyond the rank of Gefreiter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes we say. Oh, and you <laughs> asked me, sorry. I was going yeah, the, the uh, sorry. I was gonna say that we say sometimes that. Uh, leaders are sometimes born And sometimes made And uh, clearly uh, Hitler wasn't a born leader And he wasn't made during World War One, <laughs> But sometimes after Exactly
1: of yeah. course <laughs> really the argument That he was not made uh, By the experience of the First World War yeah. But is very much a pro Of what happened afterwards But you also asked me about his decorations Yeah, the two decorations um, I wanted you to
0: Hitler, uh, discuss a little bit About how
1: he w- came to get those And what they were Sure the two decorations that are the most two important the the important deco- the two most important decorations that you received were the Iron Cross Second Class and the Iron Cross First Class. They were I mean, pick the Iron Cross First Class was basically the highest military order available for man at his rank, and the. This has often really been seen also as a smoking gun to really show that Hitler really had displaced extraordinary bravery and uh, and and his his job had really been extremely dangerous and he had been an exemplar a soldier exemplary soldier and and, and so on. The and what I try to show in the book is is that that is not really what the award of those um, Iron Crosses show. It is true that the Iron Cross First Class is indeed an honor that was very rare that was indeed extremely rare for soldiers um who had not, for 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 unpromoted soldiers for ordinary soldiers however the well actually I should should add the majority of these are uh, um iron cross uh, iron crosses first class went to officers or ncos um but for the very few cases where Ordinary soldiers had received um, Iron Cross's first class. They tended to go to uh, to 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 members of the support staff of either divisions or of regiments or of brigades. So, in other words, to so soldiers who had personal interaction with the officers, mm-hmm. with the right to promote it, with, with, with the right to propose people for these honors, and that also caused an, you know, uh, a lot of bitterness from uh the soldiers in the trenches towards people like Hitler, because they felt that they basically had the really important the really dangerous job, and that they often really had to risk their lives and that they weren't really awarded while people serving with with um with regimental headquarters like Hitler had a far higher chance of receiving um of receiving um uh, iron crosses first class.
0: What was the were there specific actions in which um Hitler was involved for which he was given these awards? Very difficult
1: to tell. Um the official story that Nazi propaganda liked to tell was the story that Hitler had taken well I either sometimes the story 12 or sometimes 15 a French or sometimes British soldier's prison, a single-handedly a prisoner, and um, that story is 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 obviously uh, made up. And of course, other uh, historians have have pointed that out. Even though I should say the 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 maybe surprising thing I found in the archive is 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 that actually a. St- Story, a similar story like that happened around the time that Hitler got his Iron Cross. But the interesting thing there was that the, the, the that the person who, uh, who 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 actually was singled out for his bravery there and who was said to have really uh, fostered this arrest was uh, Hugo Gutmann, uh, the highest serving Jewish officer of the regiment to which we will return in in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, Hitler, why Hitler was in fact proposed for his Iron Cross in the summer 1918 by this Jewish officer Gugutman, which of course also is is raises all kinds of questions of Hitler's anti-Semitism because one might ask how likely would it be that a Jewish officer who personally knew Hitler would propose Hitler for this uh, rare honor if Hitler had been an outspoken and open um, anti-Semite, but. Uh, let let's keep that issue aside for a second. So basically what happened was that um Hugo Gutmann proposed Hitler force Cross. It seems that what happened was that on one occasion he had promised Hitler and another dispatch runner an Ein Cross if they would take through a message um at a particular dangerous moment in time, and again, this this goes back to the issue about how dangerous the job was. So I'm not saying that his, Hitler's job never was dangerous, and in, in, indeed, occasionally it was. And in that sense, Hitler was actually then also uh, um, a very good soldier, in that it was that he was doing what was asked of him. My argument earlier was more about um, how he was viewed by other soldiers. Anyway. So it seems that that was the story where or this was the incident where uh Hugo Goodman seems to have promised them that uh, if they get through that they would get a nine cross. The reason why it's difficult to verify or falsify the story is is that the official citation um does not mention um that that particular mm-hmm. occurrence. As well as any particular s- story at all, which actually, in itself, is is unusual, because normally these citations included mm-hmm. the action for which a specific action for which these um, mm-hmm. ordinary soldiers would be awarded an um, Iron Cross first class. Mm-hmm. But H- Hitler's citation was very general, and I mean, I can't remember the exact fra- uh, the wor- exact wording off my head, but it was basically something like for extraordinary bravery over time and 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 so on and, and and so on so it was basically um a very vague citation and um the story here indeed might have been um that it it seems to have been that the officers that both Goodman, the officers felt that um they if they had promised that I'm cross for this action they had to l- deliver on it. That it would, would be serious problem if they promised Iron Crosses and then wouldn't deliver them. But at the same time, it apparently was quite clear to the commander of the regiment that Hitler's action would have not would normally not be seen as worthy of an Iron Cross First Class. Mm-hmm. And it was probably in this context that um, it's probably that's probably why they used this sort of very vague language to justify the um, Iron Cross, which also goes, of course, back to the, uh, to, to, to my claim earlier that uh, knowing the soldiers with the right to propose um, an Iron Cross really did uh, greatly increase the chance of getting the Iron Cross. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Now, we touched on the uh, issue of Hitler's anti-Semitism. Um, is there any evidence that he was particularly anti-Semitic during the war?
1: Well, at least uh, going by what I argue in the book, no, uh, the answer is a clear no. Um, the, Of course, Hitler claimed later that he was anti-Semitic, as did other people. And the argument often indeed is, in. I mean, for instance, Ian Kershaw um, argues in his uh, famous Hitler biography that there's no reason to suggest that um, his anti-Semitism was just a... Um, or the claims of his anti-Semitism at the middle of the war was just a retroactive um, um, projection backwards, and uh, and and, and really argues that um, Hitler was already a fully blown and viralist anti-Semite during the war. Um, my argument is is that there's simply no evidence mm-hmm. to support this view. There is simply no evidence of anti-Semitic statements that he made outside of the of of a couple of memoirs of some of Hitler's bodies and um and, and of course Mein Kampf itself. And those memoirs were basically published um in the early 30s. They were they are utterly unreliable, mm-hmm. as I really demonstrate I think conclusively in the book where I show that in the different editions um, of the book, the story uh, that, that was being told changed all the time and claims were often turned upside down. Mm-hmm. So with the exception of those claims, there's really no evidence um, at all of Hitler being an out, outspoken anti-Semite. One might still, of course, say, well, just because there's no 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 no, no evidence doesn't mean that uh, he wasn't an anti-Semite. But the issue here is that... Um, there are various reasons to believe that it's extremely unlikely that Hitler was already um, a fully blown anti-semite. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which is indeed that um, Hitler was, um, sorry, that Hitler at the beginning, that Hitler at the end of the first uh, First world war was proposed by, uh, by this Jewish officer. Yeah. again, who knew Hitler personal uh, personally? And in that sense, it would be unlikely if Hitler had been an outspoken anti semite that he would have uh, proposed uh, this person for his um, for, for, for this honor. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, um, the basically the evidence that, for instance, Ian Kershaw uh, presents in his book uh, pretty quickly collapses if we really look at his evidence. I mean, the evidence is, again, in, in part based on the uh, claims of Mein Kampf and these memoirs that I just mentioned, and he also meant, Kershaw also mentions uh, the anti-Semitism that Hitler supposedly was exposed to um, on his visit home after his injury on the Somme, so in the winter of 1916, 1917, and he's talking about the very strong racial anti-Semitism that was at play in Munich at the time of course, I'm not saying that there was no racial antisemitism in Munich at all during this time. But um, there is, first of all, no evidence that Hitler specifically was exposed to it. And uh, more generally, um, there are also reasons to believe that maybe that um, emergence of racial antisemitism in the middle of the war was not quite as widespread as it's often claimed. Mm-hmm. Also, the, I mean, if we, for instance, check the footnote in um, in the paragraph in Hitler in in Kershaw's um Hitler biography about this visit to Munich, we'll see that the evidence that Hitler was supposedly based, uh, exposed to an uh, to, to, to a great emergence of anti-Semitism was um is 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 basically referenced to a book about popular attitudes in Munich during the war or in Bavaria during the war. And when I looked up the specific page the specific page reference, I realized that the, that page did not uh did not make any claims about how widespread racial anti-Semitism war, or even any claims about nineteen sixteen or nineteen seventeen at all. It it only quotes from a Munich newspaper from an extremely anti-Semitic article that appeared in a Munich newspaper in nineteen eighteen, but there's even as I said, there is even no claim that this was a representative um view expressed during 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 the war. And in addition to that, if we actually look at um attitudes in the regiment towards Jews beyond Hitler, um, we can draw a pretty conclusive picture of a relative absence of anti-Semitism in his regiment. Again, the point is not that they that everyone loved Jews. That would of course be wrong. Um, of course a kind of more traditional uh, low levels of anti-Semitism that were it was prevalent all over the Western world during this time, uh, would have of course also been prevalent um, in uh, Hitler's regiment. Mm-hmm. But there, if we, I try to uh, trace the lives of the fifty-nine Jewish soldiers in Hitler's regiment, and the evidence uh, going by that evidence, Jews were rather well integrated into the regiment. And um, for instance, a war diary of a Jewish soldier from 1917 and 1918 doesn't really make any mentioning of instances of anti-Semitism. You might still argue, well, maybe anti-Semitism was just so widespread that uh, that soldier would have not found it um, something special to point out. Well, maybe so, but the argument, <laughs> uh, but the argument of course, generally is not that just that anti-Semitism was generally prevalent, but that there was a huge upsurge of anti Semitism in the second half of uh, the First World War. In other words, that there was a huge qualitative change in the character of anti Semitism um, in German society in the First World War. And if that had been really the case, that this was absolutely widespread, we would expect uh, to see traces of that in these kind of diaries. And it's not just this particular diary, because, for instance, recently a collection of, I think, about 800 letters. Written by um, soldiers who had been who who had who had grown up in a Jewish foster home in Berlin, letters written from the front to their former director don't really mention anti-Semitism. Out of these close to eight hundred letters, only one does, and that one is based on a hearsay. So this is all to say, again, not that no anti-Semitism happened, but rather that anti-Semitism was not. Um, a major um, element, or was not very central to the experience of Jewish soldiers in Hitler's regiment, and so in combination of well, Jewish of how soldiers were integrated, and also this Jewish officer, for instance, um, what, uh, was promoted time and time again, and also received very high. um it was, a, was, it was seen as extremely. Um, in very positive terms, and his his commanding officers pointed out how this uh, uh, Jewish officer was a great leader, and how conscientious he was, and how brave he was, and so on. This also, by the way, belies. Claims made by Hitler later on that this Jewish officer supposedly was universally hated mm. in the regiment, which often then was seen as as pieces of as piece of evidence for an upsurge of anti-Semitism in the regiment, and also seen as evidence that this regiment was universally anti-Semitic. Therefore, Hitler was um, was typical of it, and therefore Hitler was also um, very much influenced by this anti-Semitism. And my argument basically is: is there simply no evidence of widespread anti-Semitism in the regiment.
0: Mm-hmm. We've taken up a lot of your time, but I really want to ask one – one. Um, uh, it's a penultimate question. It's not the ultimate question. Uh, if Hitler was not made by World War I, what did he take away from it? What lessons did he think he learned, and how did those inform his uh,
1: prosecution of the Second World War? That's a great question, but it's also a difficult one to answer because we have got to – Really ask ourselves what lessons did he take away when? Because the answer would be if we just ask what lessons did he take away, um, the answer would probably be not too many, um, that he probably did not take away too many lessons in the sense that Hitler returned from the war disoriented um, and unsure about his future with still fluctuating political ideas um, and very much an unready man. Um however if we ask the question of what, what did he make of his war experience retroactively, what kind of lessons did Hitler mm-hmm. draw from his war experiences later on? Mm-hmm. The 20s and the 30s and the early 40s, the answer is a very different one. The he already in the early years of the third uh, sorry of, of of the Nazi Party, he already took away from his war experience and also from the Liszt regiment. Um, an idea even how to, how a successful organization works. So when he tries to build up the Nazi party, he immediately turns towards Max Amann, the staff sergeant of regimental headquarters, and asks him to become managing director of the Nazi party, which he did, which he does. And so in that sense, he, I would argue really replicated or try to replicate the organisational model of regimental headquarters for setting up the party. He later does something similar after 1933, when he finally manages to talk the regimental adjutant um, Fritz Wiedemann into joining him um, in in the Reich Chancellery. He had asked, he had tried to recruit him early on, but that time he had been he had shun- he, he had been shunned by him. But in 1934. He's uh, he finally agrees to join Hitler, and then becomes one of Hitler's personal adjutants. And again, I would say even in the Reich Chancellery, he looks for people from his regiment and from his exp- to his experiences in regimental headquarters in getting inspiration of how you run an organization or an organism. How you run the Third Reich, in that sense, was very much driven by his experiences in the List regiment. He also looked for inspiration at the war in a rather more opportunistic or cynical manner, I would argue, in the 1920s and 1930s, in that he, um, he deliberately massaged and changed his war story all the time. For instance... Initially, he didn't really talk much about comradeship or kameradschaft, about the brotherhood of the trenches and so on. That really wasn't very prominent in the early, uh, early uh, Nazi rhetoric. Um, there, the idea was more also beyond Hitler the um, the ideal of of like um, of 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 of, um, of a single um, or solitary. Uh, combat soldier, heroic soldier, and so on. But it was really after 1925, as Hitler returns from from prison and as the Nazi Party is uh, refounded after it been outlaws, when Hitler really tries to think about how um, how he can really find a wider appeal to the for, uh, to, for the uh, to the German uh, public, and by and and he does so by. Uh, by Changing his war story because what he realizes is is that the kind of stuff that he's been talking about before doesn't really resonate sufficiently okay. with the Germans. Certainly, his coup attempt was a huge failure. In when in 1928, the Nazi Party runs in the in the uh, national elections again. They do dismally bad, badly. Less than three percent, the Germans vote for, for vote for them. When Hitler uh, writes his second book. Around this time, basically, people decide, um, People around him tell him, "Well, forget it. The one is going to buy this kind of stuff." And what Hitler then really does, and also Nazi propaganda um, does, is really hammer down, hammer home his messages of the brotherhood of the trenches, mm-hmm. because this word, of, this this celebration of what's called in Germany "Kameradschaft," had really become part and parcel of. The political discourse, both of the um, political left, the political right and the political center in Germany, really was transcending uh, politics in that people um, across party lines were seeing the um, an idealized version of this brotherhood of the trenches as a model for a new Germany, for a Germany that would be less fragmented, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it is in this context when Hitler then really starts to uh, to to invoke this kind of Kameradschaft and tells all these um, stories of um, uh, what happened during the war. And a lot of the stuff is really totally made up. Mm-hmm. Um, and also changes over time. And for instance, I mean, I mentioned earlier this memoir, the that uh f- from which this sort of claim that Hitler was already fully blown anti-CMAT was taken. That in the early version of that book, the author describes, um, one of so one of Hitler's immediate comrades and 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 future Nazis, he describes in this book about how they um how there was a lot of competition within the regiment, how they were treated really badly by the officers, how sold um and um, how soldiers didn't really get on with each other, and so on. In the later editions, that story has been turned upside down. <laughs> so rather, it suddenly, rather than claiming that they have been maltreated by these NCOs and officers, these officers suddenly become all these benevolent figures, and uh, and this suddenly become the story suddenly becomes this heartwarming story of where everyone was helping everyone else. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, hit. Uh, in that sense, it's certainly true that Hitler and Nazi propagandists um, cynically and opportunistically drew lessons from the uh, First World War just in order to meet the the, the needs of the day. Mm-hmm. Where arguably the first, sorry, and I should also say, the same thing, of course, happens in the peacetime years of the Third Reich. I mean, for instance, as um, Hitler builds up the military machine of Nazi Germany. He uses his um, his war experience as a smokescreen for that. So he basically keeps on saying, "Yes, of course we are we are we are arming ourselves, but we're just arming ourselves in order to keep the peace." You should really believe me because I have seen what how horrible war is. I have been in in the trenches for four and a half years. You can believe me that. Someone who's been in the in the for four and a half years won 't start a new war and, and and so on, so he uses his own war experience to really make the case that he is a leader of peace rather than a leader of war. Mm-hmm. And then later on he just uh, explicitly actually tells people at the beginning of the second World War that he just said that, that in order that um, he he just uh, t- told that people because that is what people wanted to uh, wanted to hear but it was then really in the second world War when um, his experiences from the World War, First World War, again, retroactively and in a reconfigured and changed way um, very much inform um, his conduct of in the Second World War. Um, we've already mentioned earlier uh, military justice and the very harsh policies of military justice in the Second World War, but uh, things uh, went even further than that. I mean, for instance, particularly once the war effort of Nazi Germany doesn't really go that well, and when Hitler starts, it stops to really listen to his um, officers, and often overrules them with like fantastical, nonsensical um, um, solutions or policies uh, or decisions. He then would often say things such as well you in the first world war you general whatever were you were just some <laughs> staff officer be, behind the front so in that sense he would basically use the same kind of accusation mm-hmm. um against these officers that the ordinary soldiers in the trenches had made against him mm-hmm. um to discredit them and say well i know what war was like and since we did in since we did this and that in the in the spring of 1918 um, in in Flanders, we should now also conduct the war in Russia in this in this and that way. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of examples um, where military decisions during the, um, the military decisions during the First World War inform his uh, decisions in the Second World War. And it's also in the Second World War when he increasingly often starts to invoke his experiences in the First World War. and It's, of course, even his final political testament dictated um, briefly before he committed suicide, of course, starts with his um, experiences in the First World War. I think it starts with something like um, ever since I served Germany um, as, as an ordinary soldier for four and a half years. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you very much for that. And Tom, thanks very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. We've been talking to Uh, Tom Weber today about his terrific new book, uh, Hitler's First War: Adolf Hitler, the Men of the List Regiment, and the First World War. Um, Tom, we usually close the show uh, with the following question, which I'd like you to answer very briefly, if you could. Uh, What are you working on now?
1: Well, I'm still trying. uh, I'm I'm still working out on what I will be working on next. (laughs) So, in a way, I'm at the stage where I, uh, well, where I was uh, five or six years ago when I talked to Adrian Gregory, and he suggested to write about Hitler in the First World War. There are a number of uh, possibilities that I'm exploring at the moment. Um, There is a strong case to be made, and and a lot of people have been trying to nudge me into this direction, to really write a book about Hitler in 1919. Because in a way, this is in a way the obvious question now to ask about Hitler is what really happened between the spring and the autumn of 1919. Because, well, if the results of my book are correct, and, and I think they are, then, of course, the in a way it becomes more difficult to make sense of Hitler, because we really have got to explain how in a very short period of time, Hitler changes from a man who's politically disoriented uh, to someone who has very clear and very radical um, fascist ideas, and also... Uh, with someone whose personality traits change radically from being someone who was seen as unpromotable because of a lack of uh, leadership qualities to a charismatic leader who found his uh, his voice, I was initially um hesitant to 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 seriously consider this uh because I, I guess I felt a little bit hit let out if I may say so um after writing this book, but I can increasingly see um the temptation of um of, of tackling this question, but I'm not entirely sure yet whether this is the right time for me to do so. Um I'm also sort of thinking of a couple of other ideas. One includes to write a history of um of modern Europe through the eyes of religion, to basically look at the at the social and political impact of religion. In the 20th century, also particularly at the time where Europe become, where Euro, where religion becomes, at least superficially, uh, less important in, in Europe, to actually ask the question what still at that time the political and social impact of religion were and how we can understand the 20, Euro's 20th century through that. Again, not entirely sure what this is. And, and another question I've really been battling with for a number of years and that, I of course, also discussed very much in my chapters in the Third Reich in Hitler's first war, is on how authoritarian regimes in general work and how we can actually measure public support of authoritarian regimes. And um, so in in that sense, I I feel very tempted to to try to do a research project that will try to see how we can really uh, maybe find a better way of uh, measuring public support of the of, of regimes like the Third Reich, to question whether the Third Reich really had the kind of public support that uh, is often claimed, and if if it is true that maybe the levels of public support were different from what is sometimes assumed, to figure out how then um, authoritarian regimes like that can sustain themselves, mm-hmm. but. Uh, ask me again in a few weeks time yeah i think you need to go talk to adrian again
0: (laughs) (laughs) well tom thanks very much for being on the show i really enjoyed talking to you today thank you so much okay take care bye-bye bye-bye you've been listening to an interview with thomas weber about his new book hitler's first war adolf hitler the men of the list regiment and the first world war i'm marshall poe the host of new books in history i hope you have a great week